Welcome to our special edition Leadership Lessons CPHI podcast series, created for the CPHI Festival of Pharma, the world's largest virtual gathering for the pharmaceutical industry. Where over 10 days, the global pharma industry will meet, network, partner, and learn virtually in an expo environment. Now, more than ever, effective leadership in pharma is crucial to safeguard teams, ensure continuity of production and supply, and ultimately deliver medicines to patients. In this Leadership Lessons podcast series, sponsored by Roquette, we tackle a variety of challenges facing today's pharma leaders. Hello and welcome to the CPHI podcast, part of our Festival of Pharma virtual event, where we bring into sharp focus the current issues affecting global pharmaceutical supply chains. I'm Gareth Carpenter, Pharma Editor at Informa Markets, and in today's interview we're going to take a look at what the life sciences sector can do to improve the recruitment of black, Asian and minority ethnic candidates into the industry. While most people would agree with the sentiment that a person's background shouldn't have an impact on their ability to work, the sad reality is that despite some best endeavours on the part of employers and recruitment agencies, minority groups are still disadvantaged through many recruitment campaigns. For any organisation interested in diversity and inclusion, it can often be an opportunity to not only maintain a representative demographic profile or address any imbalance that might exist within the organisation, but also to reap the benefits of having a range of perspectives and experiences around the table, leading to a more productive working environment. Leadership Lessons brought to you by CPHI Podcast Series and in partnership with Rocket. Today, as part of our Leadership Lessons podcast series, I'm happy to say I'm joined by Cynthia Davis, CEO of Bain Recruitment, a diversity and inclusion consultancy firm which focuses on delivering recruitment and consultancy processes for recruiting diverse candidates and growing talent within organisations. And as I've said, we're going to be discussing what the life sciences sector can do to improve the recruitment of black, Asian and minority ethnic candidates into senior positions in the industry. Cynthia, a very warm welcome to you and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And likewise. So Cynthia, just to kick off, could we just start by you telling us a bit about yourself and what motivated you to start BAME Recruitment? Yeah, so I suppose for me, I've been working in recruitment now for just over 20 years And throughout that kind of 20 years, I suppose, using my own kind of experience, it was flawed with loads of barriers, challenges, lack of progression in certain parts, a lot of kind of imposter syndrome is a mixture of loads of different things. But I think fundamentally, what really dawned on me is as I kind of progressed throughout my career eventually and started talking to other people that came from my kind of background, there was a clear pattern, which was the the lack of opportunities or lack of equal access to opportunities, you know, for people that come from my kind of background in terms of progressing into senior roles. For me as a recruiter, you know, I was constantly recruiting candidates into organisations. And even when I was working with recruitment companies, I would always ask them to give me diverse shortlists. I would get every excuse under the sun or the fact that there's not enough women in leadership roles, there's not enough people that come from an ethnic minority in senior positions. And that really frustrated me because I knew the talent was there. It's just the fact that people didn't have the same access to those opportunities or didn't have either equity in that process. 
And I kind of thought there's got to be a better way of bridging the two together. So giving organizations that are genuine about wanting to tap into that diverse talent, but also for candidates from diverse backgrounds to work with organizations where they are genuine about creating an inclusive culture to really kind of connect the two together. And that's how the business really started was with that in mind. For me, it's running a a process that allows people to have equity in that, but it's not tokenistic. It's not ticking a box. You know, it's really about widening the gates for others to kind of come through. So that's what BAME Recruitment was really set to do. And the work that we do is not only around race. Uh, You know, our candidates come from all protected characteristics. So that's ethnicity, that's gender, LGBTQ+, disability. It's a number of different kind of backgrounds that people come from. So for us, it's really making sure that everyone has equal access to those opportunities. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of barriers around this. So in your view, Cynthia, how do we get rid of the barriers that make today's recruitment processes unfair and biased? For me, it's really just understanding the process that you actually have. And I think when organisations look at the recruitment process, you almost need to be looking at that with a DNI kind of lens. So everything that you put out from the, you know, your every touch point that a candidate has with the organization. So from the job adverts that they receive, what's the tone, what's the language that you use, you know, about the organization to how the adverts actually written. We know that certain words will, you know, disqualify certain candidates out of the process. We know certain words will discourage women from putting themselves forward um, if they're used throughout job descriptions and job adverts. So it's been really aware of of some of those barriers that exist at the early stages of that recruitment process. But also look at where you're advertising your opportunities. You know, is it a place where you're likely to get more candidates from different kind of backgrounds searching for opportunities? If you go to the traditional kind of usual places, but then expecting a different kind of outcome, that's not going to happen. So it's being a little bit aware of where those opportunities are being seen. Are they being seen by a wider demographic of people from all walks of life? But also when they do see those opportunities, what is it that you're saying that's going to allow them to kind of connect and engage with your organisation? And when they come to apply, how easy is that journey from application? Because I think a lot of times when we look at the recruitment processes, candidates can either be put off if they've got to complete about 10 pages worth of an application form before they've even submitted a, a CV or a cover letter. That can also have an impact in in terms of people coming through the organisation. So it's really dissecting your full recruitment cycle and look at the different touch points of that process and look and identify where some of these processes could be a hindrance in terms of people coming through or people coming forward. And I think once you start analysing that with a diversity lens, you will start to kind of see where some of these pain points are for potential employees. But also just look at, you know, one of the things I would say to our clients is you need to measure in terms of the people coming through. You know, do you have a diversity questionnaire so you understand what type of people you're attracting without knowing or data? It's quite difficult to know whether your recruitment campaigns are inclusive because you don't know who's applying. Or if you do collect that data, look at the common threads of that audit Is it the fact that a lot of people that are applying are from a certain kind of demographic? And if so, it then gives you an indication of where you need to be amplifying some of your work or some of your engagement to make sure that you're covering a wider remit of people coming forward. But also look at the rate of when people apply to the ones that get interviewed, to the ones that then get hired 
what does that actually look like? Because a lot of the times it could be the fact that you're engaging with a very wide demographic of candidates, but when it gets to the interview process or the selection process, there could be a barrier there. So, But without doing an audit or understanding what the data is telling you, it's difficult to find out where to make those changes to then have the impact of what you're trying to achieve. So for me, it's everything that you do within recruitment, you need to almost put that diversity lens on it and try and understand the different stages and where those barriers could be. And one phrase, Cynthia, that we hear quite a lot of these days is unconscious bias. Firstly, how do you actually define unconscious bias and how do you remove it from your recruitment process? You're right. It's um, one of those words that a lot of people kind of use, but, you know, I suppose people don't really understand what it actually means a lot of the times, you know, and for me, we all have a bias, right? It's really understanding, you know, when we talk about unconscious bias, these are things like social stereotypes that we might have about certain types of people, certain groups of people that we maybe form outside our conscious kind of awareness. So for instance, if I meet somebody and they mention the fact that they like Arsenal football team, because I'm an Arsenal fan or automatically there's this likeness we've got something that's in common together there's some sort of trigger that that's then engaged in my brain of familiarity sorry familiarity I'm trying to get that word out and again you know it's those kind of judgments that we quickly make our brain quickly makes in terms of forming a bias or forming a likeness towards a certain person or certain group it's really understanding the impact that then has in terms of a recruitment process and I think it's just understanding the different types of biases that exist so this could be anything from ageism you know you have somebody that's a lot older that comes in for a job interview and you know you look at this cv and it it says that you know there's 60 years or something you start forming an opinion about them or it could be a woman walks in and your team tends to be all men you know that could be something that, that that could be a bias there so it's really i think for us it's understanding what our own biases are and i think once we're aware of those biases is then understanding the impact that they actually have when it comes to recruiting candidates or within a recruitment process. And I think that's where we really just need to be aware of them and make sure that, you know, at every point of that recruitment process, we almost kind of sense checking our biases and that those biases are not, you know, having an impact in our decision making when it comes to candidates or putting people through for interviews or offering people a job. And Cynthia, I think it'd be remiss of me not to mention that the current times we live in and the fact that the uh, the Black Lives Matter protest movement is getting a lot of headlines these days. Unfortunately, you know, it has stoked a backlash from some corners of society, um, many of whom their comeback is, well, white lives matter, all lives matter. How do we convince people intent on this kind of culture war that BLM is not about division? Yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, for me, we all had a a turning point as a society in the last few months, you know, when we all witnessed the horrific death of George Floyd, you know, and I think, one, the impact that actually had on us as human beings, but also the impact that that had on the, the kind of black community, you know, was, I mean, even up to now, it's still kind of quite traumatic, you know, for certain people. 
But for me, when the Black Lives Movement then started and people, you know, were standing up and kind of, you know, taking to the streets to really talk about some of the injustices that still exist in our everyday life, whether that's in our workplace, that whether that's in the health systems or in the justice systems, you know, th- these were people that were trying to highlight some of the deep systemic kind of inequalities that still exist within our society. So whether you agree with, uh, you know, BLM as a movement or as an organization, it's really looking beyond that and understanding, well, you know, what are the issues that people are standing up for? Or what are the issues that p- people are, you know, risking their lives during the COVID pandemic to actually be out in the streets to campaign and to highlight? It's those inequalities. And I think this is where, you know, with BLM, you know, we've started to see that it's it's been very difficult for people to get their heads around that. You know, most recently, an example of the group diversity, where there was a performance around Black Lives Matter in the kind of dance thing that they did for uh, Britain's Got Talent. And that had the highest rate of complaints to Ofcom. And for me, you know, that just shows as a society why we're still so uncomfortable talking about race or highlighting anything to do with race, because race is one of those topics that allow people to, well, don't, don't not even allow people, but makes people feel uncomfortable. It's one of the subjects that people would rather kind of brush aside, not necessarily have to deal with because it makes them uncomfortable. But unfortunately, we have to be courageous when it comes to race. We have to get uncomfortable with uncomfortable. And I think only by doing that is the only way that we will move forward as a society, as human beings. And it's not about black versus white. You know, it's about black people against racism and white people against racism. And I think this is where people sometimes get the two mixed up. It's not saying that black lives are more important than any other lives, but it's just saying that, unfortunately, for black lives, you know, we've been at the receiving end for so long of some of these inequalities, injustices and breach to human rights, you know, so therefore it's difficult for us to sometimes say, well, all lives matter because we don't feel like our own lives matter because of those injustices, because of those barriers and systemic kind of racism that still exists and is still impacted on the black community. You mentioned as well about having courageous conversations about race. This is something that many companies are now encouraging their employees to do is defined as a strategy for breaking down racial tensions and raising racism as a, as a topic of discussion within the workplace. Cynthia, in your view, what are the benefits of such a conversation and how can companies best implement that kind of strategy? For me, when we're talking about those courageous conversations, you have to create the safe environment for people to feel comfortable, to want to talk about those conversations. And, you know, you also have to understand the people that you're asking to talk about these conversations. This is quite traumatic things that have happened to them. There needs to be an element of understanding why those conversations are happening Are they happening so that people can learn and therefore we can do better together as an organization or as a society? And I think, you know, people are happy to share those experiences if they know it's going to affect change. But if it's just sharing experiences or having those conversations, then nothing happens. You're asking people to open up, you know, to some traumatic experience that they've had for nothing. So for me, you need to understand why you're facilitating those conversations and the impact that you're trying to have. But again, we do need to have those conversations because if we don't have those conversations, we can't move forward. You know, it's difficult to understand somebody's experiences if you've never lived that. But, you know, we can all empathize. We can all be supportive and I think we can all be allies of change and I think that's where for me those 
conversations have a big impact. It's how can we learn from those people's experiences to do better, to make sure that as a society we move forward, but we move forward in the right kind of way. But they have to be facilitated in an environment that is safe, that is comfortable, but understand that this is also quite traumatic for the person that's talking about that lived experience. Roquette is recognised as a global leader in plant-based ingredients, plant proteins, and a provider of pharmaceutical excipients. We address the current and future societal challenges by looking at the potential of nature to offer the best ingredients for food, nutrition, and health, to enable healthier lifestyles and critical components to life-saving medicines. The team at Roquette is committed to leading as a technology partner and trusted supplier all over the world, whilst providing innovative and high-quality technical support. For more about us and how we want to unlock healthier futures, visit www.roquette.com forward slash pharma. Turning towards recruitment now, um, creating a blind curriculum is becoming more commonplace among job seekers and maybe people listening to this podcast won't know what I mean by that. This means it's essentially a CV devoid of any personal details which refer to the applicant's gender, age, ethnicity. I'm struggling with words as well, Cynthia. In general, the idea is that the absence of this type of information should help ensure that personal bias doesn't occur in the recruitment process. Um, Now, Cynthia, I know you've got quite a strong view on this. Is blind recruitment a good idea? For me, my opinion is is, it's in two folds, really. One, I think the initial idea of holding back some of the information that people automatically use to disqualify people in the first instance is good because it allows some of those candidates to filter through a system and get through to the next stage. But it's what happens beyond that stage. So basically, you you can have the blind CV at the forefront and then people kind of, you know, walk through the door. If you haven't actually removed that bias out of that process, you're almost sometimes delaying the inevitable because that bias still exists in that process. So the person will still walk through the door. And if your bias is, I don't want to hire women, or your bias is, I I don't want to hire people that come from this kind of background or live in this particular area or come from this socioeconomic kind of background, that will always be there. So all you've just literally done is just delayed it by one stage because you still have to deal with that person when they're sat in front of you. So for me, if you're going to do that blind CV, you have to take it a step further. You have to remove the the bias out of the entire process for it to be impactful because then it allows people to come in right from the, the from the early stages, right through the interview stage. And that will also filter through in terms of people going through, you know, the final stages and hopefully getting, a, a, you know, appointed at the other end. But without doing that, you know, without taking those additional steps, all it is, is just holding back stage one and moving it straight forward to stage two and then it starts to fall down again. Playing devil's advocate here, uh, Cynthia, I mean, is there a danger that the corporate world can fall into the rut of just playing lip service to issues such as equality and diversity? And what I mean by that is that companies maybe focus their energies on wanting to be seen to joining the bandwagon and displaying a positive external image around issues around race, etc., rather than actually making positive and meaningful changes within. 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely spot on. And and I think, you know, a great example of that was, um, you know, during the BLM movement, we saw the Blackout Tuesday where companies put black squares on their um, social media feed or, you know, kind of blacked out content for that day. But the impact that had on organisations that were just jumping on that bandwagon and paying lip service to it was the employees within those organisations were in uproar because they were like, hang on a minute, you can't then say you're anti-racist and put this black square across the media to say, you know, this is what you stand for. And yet internally, this is how people from the black community are experiencing every single day, the things that you're saying you, you stand against. So I think you've got to be really careful what you put out into the public domain, because if you you do not live by those principles, don't say it. People would rather have honesty and transparency to say, you know, we're going on a journey of change. We are trying to embed equality and diversity into our organisation. And this is what we're doing to try and address that. And this is the change that we're going through rather than say, yes, this is us. We We don't agree with that. We don't stand for that. And yet behind the scenes, it's a different matter. So now I can imagine there are some companies out there, Cynthia, who have all the right intentions to take action, but realising the sensitive nature of some of these issues, they may be a bit worried about, well, getting it wrong. Are there any notable pitfalls that companies can avoid when implementing an equality, diversity and inclusion programme? Yeah, and I, and I think for any um, DNI uh, programme to be successful, you know, you need to be listening to the voice of the people that you're trying to support so I think where sometimes it's got it wrong is that assumption that well this is what's going to work and this is what you know and not listened to the people that you're trying to support so when organizations are putting a DNI kind of strategy I'm going to think well who's around the table who are you consulting with that is you know whether it's a program that's supposed to support women or supposed to support people from an ethnic minority background or LGBTQ plus or disability are those people voices represented around that table when you're having those conversations or putting that program together or that strategy together because if not more likely that's when organizations get it wrong an example of this is when organizations have put up products into the market you know case in point when certain kind of food chef put out a product around uh, something that was very culturally around you know people from afro-caribbean kind of background around jerk rice that there's no such thing as jerk rice and that is such a a cultural heritage you know main food for people from african caribbean kind of background that it actually had a bigger impact on their brands by not having somebody around that table who could have said, hang on a minute, this isn't right. We cannot run with this kind of product or this kind of campaign because it's not actually correct. This does not actually exist. It's the same as when you're trying to put together EDNI kind of strategy without having those people represented around the table, you know, and consulting with them about what issues are, what they're wanting to change. It's difficult to implement that in the right kind of way. So for me, that would be the main pitfall I'd always say to organisations, whatever you're doing, make sure you're consulting with people that would actually be affected by some of these changes. Use your employee resource groups as support because a lot of organisations will have those employee resource groups. That's what they're there for, is really utilising that knowledge and that wealth of experience to help implement some of these programmes to make sure that you're getting it right to get the right kind of output. And finally, Cynthia, this is a life sciences audience and, you know, you say you've got 20 years experience in recruitment. Could you just sort of outline how pharma companies can ensure that they're really making an impact when it comes to ensuring their recruitment processes are completely free of bias and discrimination? 
Yeah, and I think for me, some of the things I would be looking at is just look at the kind of key steps to try and kind of stop that is make sure that you're aware of what those biases are. You know, you're aware of where structurally those biases exist. And this goes just beyond pharma, it goes across any kind of sector. But again, you need to measure what you're trying to do and the impact that it's actually having. Um, But again, for me, it's making sure that you're gathering feedback, you know, every single step in terms of how those kind of processes are working. And I think there's there's sometimes a tendency for people to kind of think, well, yeah, you know, we're doing great. Constant feedback is so important, you know, to make sure that whatever it is that you're doing has the right kind of impact. And without that, you know, you sometimes could be failing. And as you said, around kind of, you know, recruitment process to make sure that they're free of things like, you know, kind of discrimination, that only comes from data. You know, it's hard to know whether it's it's effective or where the pain points are if you don't know what the data is telling you. So I'm such a great believer in data and I've always been an advocate of that is if you don't have that data to back up what you're trying to do, you're almost kind of fumbling about in the dark. So put a process in place that allows you to measure the impact of whatever it is that you're doing across your recruitment processes to make sure that it could be as inclusive as it can be. But again, you've got that data to always be referring back to and measuring and seeing what impact it's actually having. And this is something that any organisation could implement. You know, it's not only just for for pharma but I think for pharma especially you know I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done around representation you know representation at senior kind of levels and senior hierarchies I think sometimes when people are trying to come into the sector if they don't see that representation they probably feel it's not a sector that's welcoming to people that look different or come from different kind of backgrounds so you almost have to really make sure that at every kind of stage, there is that representation so people can come into the sector and see a way for them to kind of progress and grow because then it's more attainable. If you can see it, you can become it. When you don't see that, you don't think it's for you and therefore you lose fantastic talent coming into the sector because that representation doesn't exist. Cynthia, thank you very much indeed. It's been truly enlightening. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. That's it for today's CPHI podcast, part of our Festival of Pharma, bringing the global pharma industry to you. Please do tune into our next podcast. Until then, thanks very much for listening, and we wish you a pleasant day ahead. You're listening to Leadership Lessons by the CPHI podcast series, and in partnership with Rocket. Rocket.